livelihoods and dreaming of Shabbat and festivals when they could close their stores and turn their attention to their prayers, their rabbi, their God. Every Orthodox Jew sent his male children to a yeshiva, a Jewish parochial school, where they studied from eight or nine in the morning to four or five in the evening. On Fridays, the students were let out at about one o'clock to prepare for the Shabbat. Jewish education was compulsory for the Orthodox, and because this was America and not Europe, English education was compulsory as well. So each student carried a double burden. Hebrew studies in the mornings and English studies in the afternoons. The test of intellectual excellence, however, had been reduced by tradition and unvoiced unanimity to a single area of study, Talmud. Virtuosity in Talmud was the achievement most sought after by every student of a yeshiva, for it was the automatic guarantee of a reputation for brilliance. Danny attended the small yeshiva established by his father. Outside of the Williamsburg area, in Crown Heights, I attended the yeshiva in which my father taught. This latter yeshiva was somewhat looked down upon by the students of other Jewish parochial schools of Brooklyn, it offered more English subjects in the required minimum, and it taught its Jewish subjects in Hebrew rather than Yiddish. Most of the students were children of immigrant Jews who preferred to regard themselves as having been emancipated from the fenced-off ghetto mentality typical of the other Jewish parochial schools in Brooklyn. Danny and I probably would never have met, or we would have met under altogether different circumstances, had it not been for America's entry into the Second World War and the desire this bred on the part of some English teachers in the Jewish parochial schools to show the Gentile world that yeshiva students were as physically fit, despite their long hours of study, as any other American student. They went about proving this by organizing the Jewish parochial schools in and around our area into competitive leagues and once every two weeks, the schools would compete against one another in a variety of sports. I became a member of my school's varsity softball team. On a Sunday afternoon in early June, the 15 members of my team met with our gym instructor in the play yard of our school. It was a warm day, and the sun was bright on the asphalt floor of the yard. The gym instructor was a short, chunky man in his early 30s, who taught in the mornings in a nearby public high school and supplemented his income by teaching in our yeshiva during the afternoons. He wore a white polo shirt, white pants, and white sweater. And from the awkward way the little black skull cap sat perched on his round, balding head, it was clearly apparent that he was not accustomed to wearing it with any sort of regularity. When he talked, he frequently thumped his right fist into his left palm to emphasize a point. He walked on the balls of his feet, almost an imitation of a boxer's ring stance, and he was fanatically addicted to professional baseball. He had nursed our softball team along for two years, and by a mixture of patience, luck, shrewd manipulations during some tight ball games, and hard, fist-thumping harangues calculated to shove us into a patriotic awareness of the importance of athletics and physical fitness for the war effort he was able to mold our original team of 15 awkward fumblers into the top team of our league. His name was Mr. Galanter, and all of us wondered why he was not off somewhere fighting in the war.
During my two years with the team, I had become quite adept at second base and had also developed a swift underhand pitch that would tempt a batter into a swing but would drop into a curve at the last moment and slide just below the flaying bat for a strike. Mr. Galanter always began a ball game by putting me at second base and would use me as a pitcher only in very tight moments because, as he put it once, my baseball philosophy is grounded on the defensive solidarity of the infield. That afternoon we were scheduled to play the winning team of another neighborhood league, a team with a reputation for wild offensive slugging and poor fielding. Mr. Galanter said he was counting upon our infield to act as a solid defensive front. Throughout the warm-up period, with only our team in the yard, he kept thumping his right fist into his left palm and shouting at us to be a solid defensive front. No holes, he shouted from near home plate. No holes, you hear? Goldberg, what kind of solid defensive front is that? Close in. A battleship could get between you and Malter. That's it. Schwartz, what are you doing? Looking for paratroops? This is a ball game. The enemy's on the ground. That throw was wide, Goldberg. Throw it like a sharpshooter. Give him the ball again. Throw it. Good. Like a sharpshooter. Very good. Keep the infield solid. No defensive holes in this war. We batted and threw the ball around. And it was warm and sunny. And there was the smooth, happy feeling of the summer soon to come. And the tight excitement of the ball game. We wanted very much to win. Both for ourselves and more especially, for Mr. Galanter, for we had all come to like his fist-thumping sincerity. To the rabbis who taught in the Jewish parochial schools, baseball was an evil waste of time, a spawn of the potentially assimilationist English portion of the yeshiva day. But to the students of most of the parochial schools, an interleague baseball victory had come to take on only a shade less significance than a top grade in Talmud for it was an unquestioned mark of one's Americanism, and to be counted a loyal American had become increasingly important to us during these last years of the war. So Mr. Galanter stood near home plate, shouting instructions and words of encouragement, and we batted and tossed the ball around. I walked off the field for a moment to set up my eyeglasses for the game. I wore shell-rimmed glasses, and before every game, I would bend the earpieces in so the glasses would stay tight on my head and not slip down the bridge of my nose when I began to sweat. I always waited until just before a game to bend down the earpieces, because, bent, they would cut into the skin over my ears, and I did not want to feel the pain a moment longer than I had to. The tops of my ears would be sore for days after every game, but... Better that, I thought, than the need to keep pushing my glasses up the bridge of my nose, or the possibility of having them fall off suddenly during an important play. Davy Cantor, one of the boys who acted as a replacement if a first stringer had to leave the game, was standing near the wire screen behind home plate. He was a short boy, with a round face, dark hair, owlish glasses, and a very Semitic nose. He watched me fix my glasses. You're looking good out there, Reuven, he told me. Thanks, I said. Everyone's looking real good. It'll be a good game. He stared at me through his glasses. You think so? he asked. Sure, why not? You ever see them play, Reuven? 
No. They're murderers. Sure, I said. No, really. They're wild. You saw them play? Twice. They're murderers. Everyone plays to win, Davy. They don't only play to win. They play like it's the first of the Ten Commandments. I laughed. That yeshiva? I said. Oh, come on, Davy. It's the truth. Sure, I said. Reb Saunders ordered them never to lose because it would shame their yeshiva or something. I don't know. You'll see. Hey, Malter! Mr. Galanter shouted. What are you doing? Sitting this one out? You'll see, Davy Cantor said. Sure. I grinned at him. A holy war. He looked at me. Are you playing? I asked him. Mr. Galanter said I might take second base if you have to pitch. Well, good luck. Hey, Malter! Mr. Galanter shouted. There's a war on, remember? Yes, sir, I said, and ran back out to my position at second base. We threw the ball around a few more minutes, and then I went up to home plate for some batting practice. I hit a long one out to left field, and then a fast one to the shortstop, who fielded it neatly and whipped it to first. I had the bat ready for another swing when someone said, Here they are. And I rested the bat on my shoulder and saw the team we were going to play turn up our block and come into the yard. I saw Davy Cantor kick nervously at the wire screen behind home plate, then put his hands into the pockets of his dungarees. His eyes were wide and gloomy behind his owlish glasses.